Let's hit the road. This is a special edition of the Family Life Noon Report. I'm Greg Gillespie, and today we take you on a radio tour of some great spots all the way through Pennsylvania and New York State. It's our Staycation Destination Special. Here's what's coming up. A mecca for travelers. We get tourists from just about every place you can think of. If you played the game by virtue of the game, it taught you manners. It taught you how to be trustworthy and honest. It's actually an immersive experience to try to convey what it was like to be a family caught in the middle of the Battle of Gettysburg. Sitting down and talking about life and realizing that the change that they can make and taking action on it. It's also really become a a good date spot for people as well. (laughs) Yes, that is all coming up. And there's more, too. So, let's buckle up and enjoy our journeys. We begin at the Beyond the Battle Museum, which Adams County opened just in 2023. Not to give away too much of a spoiler, but one of the exhibits will put you interactively inside a farmhouse in the 1860s. You'll be able to see sunlight coming through holes in the wall where the bullets had been flying. John, what's happening? Our boys are running back through the town. It's awful. There are wounded men in the street. One man on a horse told me to keep inside, all of us. The, the thing that we have heard the most from, from guests and visitors to the museum is that they love um, and really appreciate our Calton the Crossfire um, experience. It's actually an immersive experience to try to convey what it was like to be a family caught in the middle of the Battle of Gettysburg. Our boys are running back through the town. It's awful. There are wounded men in the street. Uh, So we have recreated um, a home of the time and guests go in and they they hear the family talking and they hear the sounds of the battle around them. We just really wanted to to convey to people the impact that this battle had on people. It's too dangerous. We must stay here, stay quiet. We can't leave until the soldiers tell us it's clear. There's fighting everywhere. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. We've had many people say they were very moved by the experience. Um, It's something unique uh, that hasn't really been done here before in town. So it just really provides that perspective to the visitors of what it really was like to, to be here during the battle. The new Beyond the Battle Museum at Gettysburg is just north of downtown. Michaela Schaefer is the marketing director for the Adams County Historical Society. Next up on Staycation Destinations, we go up toward the north edge of Pennsylvania and visit the Grand Canyon. Yes, the Pennsylvania version. Colleen Hansen is executive director of Visit Potter Tioga. Well, the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon is also known as the Pine Creek Gorge. It is surrounded by approximately 165,000 acres of the Tioga State Forest. There's a state park at either side on the top of the canyon. Leonard Harrison State Park is the east rim, and Colton Point State Park is the west rim. 
Both parks offer beautiful overlooks and lots and lots of hiking trails. We have hiking trails for every skill level. We have ADA trails, and then we have uh, challenging trails that include rock climbing and steep surfaces. Just about anybody can find a hiking trail in our region. The bottom of the canyon, uh, the floor of the canyon, used to be an old railroad bed. They pulled it up uh, about 15 years ago, and they created the Pine Creek Rail Trail. It's a 62-mile path that starts here in Wellsboro and finishes up in Jersey Shore, PA. It's hard pack gravel and only about a 2% grade overall. All of those things contributing to the fact that USA Today named it one of the top 10 places to take a hike in the United States. It's suitable for hiking, walking, running, bicycling, or horseback riding. Uh, Really a lovely, lovely walk. Do you have statistics, you and others who do hospitality, whether it's statistics or just individual stories? How many states, how many countries people come and see this Pennsylvania Grand Canyon and the the other things you have in your two counties? Well, Pottertioga region is a mecca for travelers. Uh, We get tourists from just about every place you can think of because we have such a varied list of things to do. A lot of people from the East Coast, lots of visitors through our visitor center here from Germany and Switzerland. Uh, When people are coming to the United States and they're coming to the East Coast, the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon and the Dark Sky Park at Cherry Springs seem to be on their bucket list. So we're known for our outdoor adventure, which obviously draws uh, people who love to hike and bike and kayak, things like that. But we are also home to some of the best hunting and fishing. That's really what started tourists uh, coming to this region is our beautiful hunting and fishing areas. In addition to all of that, we draw people here for our roads. So we are known among motorcyclists as having some of the best motorcycling roads in the country. The Pennsylvania version of the Grand Canyon is located in the north central part of the Keystone State. You're listening to our Family Life Staycation Destination Special. Here's what's still on our itinerary. So they would be allowed to hold on to their paychecks or be able to go to college today or be able to have their voice heard with the right to vote as well. The game of life that you can actually ride giant Jenga blocks to climb over. We had a great group in this year. They were from 1973 Little League World Series. We will take you to Williamsport, Pennsylvania with a new interview. But first, I want you to hear this conversation with a National Park Service ranger at the National Historic Site in the Finger Lakes area of New York. It was a special visit because in July, it was the 175th anniversary of a major event. Hi, I'm Rebecca Weaver, a park ranger at Women's Rights National Historical Park here in Seneca Falls, New York. What's the significance of what these women did, women and any men who were supportive, as the launching point of this movement? The first Women's Rights Convention was the first time that men and women came together to have a public conversation about what is it like to be a woman in the United States. A lot of the laws and customs that we did made it so that women were 
were not seen as equals. They weren't allowed to vote, couldn't speak up in certain settings, have an equal education, to hold on to property, and that included their own paychecks. So this was the first time that five ladies, uh, Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Katie Stanton, Jane Hunt, Marianne McClintock, along with Martha Coffin Wright, sat down for a cup of tea and decided to organize a gathering of folks to talk about this and see how can we achieve equality? What's the game plan and what are we going to be looking for? And out of this convention, they created a document called the Declaration of Sentiments. Based off of the Declaration of Independence, it was women calling for their freedoms so that they would be allowed to hold on to their paychecks or be able to go to college today or be able to have their voice heard with the right to vote as well. So 175 years ago was the first call for equality between men and women in the United States. Approximately 300 people attended. And from those 300, 100 were willing to put down their names. So there were supporters there that were a little bit like, oh, that's nice, but not right now to mark off my name. There were people who were curious as to what in the world is women's rights. It wasn't an issue that was really brought up until this point. Uh, They've heard about issues like temperance. They've heard about issues like anti-slavery. But this was a brand new one. Uh, When it gets published in the newspapers by another gentleman from upstate New York, Frederick Douglass, the country finds out what happens and... Elizabeth K. Stanton likes to say everywhere from Maine to Texas tried to make them the laughing stock of the United States, tried to turn it into a joke. But sure enough, people were interested in it and it continued to grow with enough support that two weeks later in Rochester, a second convention was held. And then two years later was the first national convention. Was there negative reaction to this 175 years ago? So there was some pushback. There were folks who didn't really see this as, well, is this necessary? Or thought it was maybe not right now. But they were lucky enough to have a good group of about 100 people who were willing to sign off on it. Rebecca, this historical park is open year-round. What do your guests experience whenever they come to the Women's Rights Historical Park for their visits? Our big thing is we have the Wesleyan Chapel that the First Women's Rights Convention was held in. And we have ranger programs throughout the day that go over the history of that site. Uh, The park also has homes of the organizers. And you're part of the National Park Service, so the price is right. Absolutely. We are free, so you can come and visit us whenever. We do not have any charge, even for our special programs. What are some of the favorites that you hear from from the tourists and the history buffs and the families that visit the center? A lot of folks don't know that we're here, so please come on out. But this started out with five women who were just sitting down and realized that they had the skills to do something to make the world a little bit better. And it's a story that relates. It's a family member coming up for a visit, sitting down and talking about life and realizing that the change that they can make and taking action on it. Uh, So a lot of folks resonate with the story of the organizing of the convention themselves. Ranger Rebecca Weaver at the Women's Rights National Historic Park at Seneca Falls, New York. This is our staycation special, and we have not aired this interview before on the radio. It's at the Little League World Series Museum. Lots of people were at Williamsport over the past several weeks, but more come to see the history of baseball and softball for the youngsters. Director Adam Thompson tells us what you can see if you go to the Little League World Series Museum. So we cover the history of the Little League program, which includes baseball and softball. 
um, as well as our challenger division and some of our um, senior divisions as well. And we, uh, a visitor will come and learn a little bit about the history of the Little League program, how it started here in Williamsport. And we have artifacts from those early years that we have on display. Um, we do have an activity area where uh, children and adults are allowed to see how fast they run from home plate to first base. They can um, play on the, uh, pretend they're a shortstop and pretend they're a catcher. And of course, we have history, um, a history room de dedicated to the Little League World Series, which on um, um, both baseball and softball. I could see there would be a lot of generation to generation kind of stories that happened there at your museum. Yeah, you know, it's been great. And especially during the World Little League World Series, we, you know, a lot of teams will come back and we had a great group in this year. They were from... Uh, 1973 Little League World Series. I think two teams actually um, who played here during that time were here. And the one group uh, was in from Germany. They were all U.S. kids um, whose parents were in the military. And uh, they had a little reunion. And it was fun showing them their pictures. And um, we also had a lot of uh, just people individually, maybe not coming as a reunion, uh, two gentlemen from Mexico who played in two different years, and it was great to connect with them. And um, what's great now is um, I can contact them in the future if we have other questions and or maybe help them out with some photos. So um, it's really cool to see what it means to them to be a part of this whole, uh, you know, history of the Little League World Series and. We, we even have time to put the, the current players' photos on our little machine so they can see them. And it's fun explaining to them, like, this. you're a part of history now. You're a part of, you know, this great program. This You had the opportunity to play in the Little League World Series. And so they see their photo and they're shocked to see it's in the museum already. And then, you know, I kind of emphasize to them, you know, maybe in 10 or 15 years, you're going to come back. You're going to bring your kids grandkids eventually, you know, and you'll be able to show off and that you were a part of this kind of cool historic event. You get the chance to talk with people, like you say, not only around the country, but around the world. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's a, a great opportunity. You know, somebody who grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania to be able to interact with people all around the world. It's uh, a lot of great moments for me, you know, interacting with all these folks from around the world. Adam Thompson is the director of the Little League World Series Museum. 20,000 people were there during the two weeks of this year's Little League World Series, but the museum is open throughout the year. We've set aside our regular programming on this holiday for the Noon Report so that we can give you some of the highlights of our Friday visits with people who have some great insights on some of the great places that are close to home and relatively inexpensive to visit. Here is a preview of what's still to come. So we are really excited when we see kids' face light up. They're instantly a kid again. Those emotions come back. The honesty and integrity in building a community and felt that golf was integral in teaching those values. We go to the western part of Pennsylvania now, not far from the Ohio state line. Near Sharon and Hermitage, there is a golf course. It is a one-of-a-kind golf course. One of the problems with taking up the sport of golf is the expense. 
But 11 decades ago, a community leader there addressed that issue. And all this time later, Buell Park Golf is free. Golf pro Tom Roskus is executive director of Buell Park. Tell us about the history of the Buell Park Golf. In the early 1900s, when Frank Buell started purchasing farmland in the area to create a park where his employees and the folks in the community could go to relax, get together, have picnics, and have recreation, be outside, and enjoy themselves, he felt that it was crucial and, a, and an important part in a community to have a golf course that was accessible to everybody. And so on a whim, he went up to Mayfield Country Club and engaged a golf professional up there, Herbert Way, who designed the golf course for $36 back then. Pretty nominal fee. They brought in all of the folks, the grass, the mowing equipment to build the golf course, which at the time would have sat adjacent to the Sharon Country Club. And so unique thing about that back then is basically the public and the private players met at the same place and played similar holes that that were shared back then. Frank Buell talked regularly about the honesty and integrity in building a community and felt that golf was integral in teaching those values, that if you played the game by virtue of the game, it taught you to be a good citizen. It taught you manners. It taught you how to integrate with new people. It taught you how to be trustworthy and honest, making a community better. And and we believe, and I believe that that was his main interest in having a golf course that was open and free to the public so that they were able to enjoy a game and be outside, but also learn the values that golf teaches. Tom Roskus of Buell Park Golf in Western Pennsylvania. In more than a century, they have never charged any green fees. It's the only free nine-hole golf course in America. Now we go to something that's a little newer, only opened in the early 80s. It's the Museum of Play in downtown Rochester. Shane Reinwald is our tour guide. Now there are a lot of different kinds of museums, those that do history and those that do science and those that do art, but what is special about having a museum designated for play it's really completely unique and in a sense it's almost two museums in one so we get to have a little bit of all of it so we are at our core an american history museum so we collect and display the artifacts of play so we have an original monopoly prototype that folks can see some of the earliest electronic games and pinball machines that you can come down and take a look at and learn about their history and what they meant and um sort of how they connected to the culture of any specific decade from the last few centuries but you can't be a play museum and just show people play objects. So we're also a super family friendly museum, have a lot of aspects that people might traditionally associate with a children's museum. So not only can you look at all of these cool things, then you can go and play in a giant spaceship or a giant dollhouse or see statues of your favorite superheroes and learn about how they inspire play. We have a giant pop-up storybook, which makes it a super multi-generational kind of experience as well. The grandparents can talk about the things that they played with when they were a kid and showcase those and, and the parents as well. And then the kids can go and actually get hands on with things that are similar. Is there a typical kind of museum goer who comes and visits the Museum of Play? Are there categories of groups who who enjoys being there? 
Yeah. So it really is a little bit of everyone. We certainly have lots of families, lots for kids to do and play and learn as they experience the museum. But we have a lot of adults that come as well. We have people that are really into electronic games and comic books and things like that. Grandparents that often come and bring bring the grandkids. It's also really become a, a good date spot for people as well. So if you think of those first dates, that sometimes can be a little bit awkward. Well, here you come. There's plenty to talk about. There's plenty to remember. So we have folks of all ages and all scopes. Tell us about the strong part of your name and the history. The name the strong comes from Margaret Woodbury Strong. She was the museum founder, the museum benefactor. She was the only child of a very wealthy family here in the Rochester area. They were actually the earliest and single largest shareholders in Eastman Kodak stock. So as you can imagine, when Eastman Kodak became a powerhouse, they went from rich to fantastically wealthy. And that afforded her as a child all sorts of opportunities to travel the world. And that's where she fell in love with collecting. And she really loved to collect dolls, miniatures, play-related items. And she did collect a little bit of everything as well. But she would invite people into her house to see what she had collected. And she sort of called it her own personal museum. Um, she passed away in 1969, and she left the bulk of what she had collected and the bulk of her money and not much more of a roadmap other than I would like a formal museum. And then in the early 2000s, we got back to really what the core of what made Margaret Woodbury strong tick. It was those dolls. It was those toys. And there is an academic thread there in the museum world to tie it together. And play is a serious subject. And now it's getting its due as a serious topic, as something that's incredibly important, not only for kids, but for adults alike. Now, in your role, you spend a lot of time doing a lot of different things, but are there particular parts of the Strong Museum or different exhibits that you personally enjoy going over and taking a look at if you've got a little free time? I do. I actually have a four-year-old, so it's fun to bring him and see it through his eyes and not necessarily just see it through the eyes of somebody that works here. But some of my personal favorite areas, I really like what we're doing with electronic games and contextualizing those and putting those into the play history. So there's a lot of those moments just walking through where it's like, oh, I didn't know we had that. That's something I had as a kid. Oh, I haven't played this game in 20 years. Let's see if I'm still good at it and still have the knack for it. And you see that with guests throughout the museum. One of my favorite things to hear is people telling their kids or their grandkids those stories. Oh, I had one just like that when I was a kid. Or the neighbor kid got one of those and my parents wouldn't buy it for me. And 30, 40, 50 years later, I still have emotion over that. And that, I think, is the power of toys and play, is that somebody can see something that they haven't seen in 50 years, and they're instantly transported. They're instantly a kid again. Those emotions come back. And then to have people be able to share those is, is something special. Isn't that the power of personal stories? That is. Give us an overview of the new and exciting things that are happening as you've just been through your expansion. So the Strong, uh, we are the only museum in the world dedicated to the study of play. And now we have added to that already a massive building. It was 275,000 square feet. We just opened at the end of June an exciting 90,000 square foot expansion, which really is looking at what's next in play. So it's looking at electronic games and how they've really changed the way that people play and communicate and connect with each other across geographic boundaries. And we've also added with the expansion, a new outdoor play area. It's our Hasbro game park. So think of all the favorite board games from your childhood 
brought to life. So giant candy canes from Candyland, the spinner from the Game of Life that you can actually ride, giant Jenga blocks to climb over. Um, just something really super fun. And one of the first times that we've done something outdoors as a museum. Shane Reinwald of the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester. This is our Labor Day special recapping our staycation destinations from summer of 2023. Next up to East Auto, New York, and it's also a play place, even though it's an art museum. It sounds like a strange combination, but the founder's granddaughter gives us details about the Griffiths Sculpture Park. I am Neela Griffiths-Lampman. I am the executive director of the Ashford Hollow Foundation. We own and operate the Griffiths Sculpture Park in East Otto, New York. Now you have a very personal connection with this sculpture park. Tell us about the history of that and how it has grown to what it has become now. I do. I am the granddaughter of Larry Griffiths Jr., who is the visionary and founder of the Ashford Hollow Foundation. His journey to create this beautiful sculpture park started off in his early teens and kind of continued into his family life. So Larry actually fought in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II, which was one of the bloodiest fights in the history of World War II. And while he was fighting, uh, he was actually still creating art, even in some of the darkest days that he had. On his back throughout the war, he had a uh, art kit and it contained his paints and his paintbrushes. And anytime there was any downtime, he would actually utilize that to create paintings. When he returned home, he actually started an organization called Fanishir Ladies Hosiery. It was actually a very successful company and he started the company with his uncle. He was still painting. So he would come uh, home after work and he would paint long into the wee hours of the morning. So his uncle looked at him and said, Larry, I appreciate what you're doing, but the painting is really taking precedence over your work. And I do think that you need to make a decision whether you want to be a business owner or if you want to be an artist. And Larry really took some time and looked at what he would like out of his life and made the decision to sell his home and move the family to Italy to really hone his skills in sculpture, painting, and bronze casting. This is where he really learned to sculpt. And he also took his family on a plethora of outings to museums. And he started to notice that his children weren't as engaged or interested in museums as he hoped they would be. So he took them to Hadrian's Villa. And this was a place where the children completely thrived. They were interacting with the art. They were interacting with the nature. And this is really where the seed for the sculpture park was planted. And that's where he saw his family just blossom with the art and nature marriage. And he knew he wanted to bring something like that to Western New York. All of his original 1960s large scale, 3000 pound, over 25 foot sculptures were placed at the top of Kissing Bridge in the early 1960s until he was able to secure the plot of land where Griffith Sculpture Park in East Otto now resides. So that's where we have 450 acres of land with over 10 miles of hiking trails and over 250 sculptures. 
we highlight quite a few of national and international artists and have a plethora of Larry Griffiths pieces throughout the sculpture park as well. When someone comes to be a visitor, what kind of an experience should they look for? What what do you see and become a part of when you visit the sculpture park? All of a sudden, out of the meadow, you see Larry Griffiths' original large-scale pieces almost kind of pop out of the grassy fields. And it's quite awe-inspiring. I always suggest to people to pack a lunch, intend on staying the day, bring a picnic blanket, bring the family, bring some great hiking shoes, and just wander and meander throughout the sculpture park. There's so many pieces for children and adults to engage with and really explore much different than you could in a museum setting. This is somewhere where you can actually feel the welds, you can feel the the pieces, you can interact with them. A lot of the pieces encourage touching, feeling, and climbing on them. So we are really excited when we see kids' face light up. The Griffiths Outdoor Sculpture Park is at East Auto, New York in Cattaraugus County. And that is our half hour of highlights from the summer 2023 staycation destinations on Family Life. Now, obviously, even with a full 30 minutes, we couldn't recap everything we've given you on Fridays all summer long. But you can go to our website to hear expanded versions of these conversations, plus also find out about the racing history at Watkins Glen, boat tours and wildlife watching at Presque Isle at Erie, and the Great Law of Peace Center, a celebration of Native American culture and history at Liverpool, New York. And also on our website, not only can you visit every place we have over these past few months, but you can also go back to previous years of staycation destinations. I'm Greg Gillespie. Thanks for joining us for this Labor Day holiday special. As I have said every Friday throughout the summer, I hope you will buckle up and wherever you go, enjoy your journeys. This has been a special presentation of Family Life News.